Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I am your host, Mark Schindler. Uh, before we get started today, as always, if you have not, please be sure to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Obviously, subscribe anywhere else you can get your podcasts. And of course, read us over at Indie Cornrows. Um, I'm really excited today because, A, partially, um, I am not focusing on the election right now. I am just talking about basketball, which that's always a, a great time and um, what I'm about. So I can't complain. And, and then, B, I'm really Pretty static for this. Um, obviously, I've, I've talked to Mark Monteith in the past. Obviously, one of the greatest uh, Pacers writers of, of all time. That's that's pretty unequivocal. Um, we're doing a podcast series. Um, this is going to be our first episode. We're going to be covering some of the um, really interesting players that, that you can dive into in, in, in Pacers lore and history. And um, I'm I'm really excited to get to get going with this. Mark, first of all, thank you for doing this. And, and second of all, how are how are you doing today? Um, how have things been on your end? Yeah, doing well, doing well, Mark. Good to be with you. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I no longer work for Pacers.com, mm-hmm. and that was just a part-time gig anyway. So I've had more time to do things. I've added a lot of content to my website, MarkMonteith.com, video and some stories related to the Pacers. I have a twenty-minute documentary, actually longer than twenty minutes, on the seventy-two championship, and also won more than 20 minutes on the 73 championship. And these are rarely seen videos that I was lucky to get. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something people may want to check out. Uh, Forewarn, I do have a one-time fee of 19.95 to be a member of the website, but that's not an annual thing. That's just a one-time payment. So a huge amount of Pacers content and other content on that website. So I've been spending time with that. I uh, do a monthly sports-related column for the Indianapolis Business Journal, which I've enjoyed. That kind of allows me to branch out a little bit. And I am working on another book. I want to do a book on the Pacer Championship seasons mm-hmm. in the ABA, the 70, 72, and 73 championship seasons. So I've been uh, researching that, interviewing people, have a long way to go, but I do want to do that as well. That's awesome. Yeah, and definitely I can speak on on your website. To, to anyone who has not subscribed, they should. Uh, you have just the tremendous amount of, of, of Pacers history on there. And just from your podcast, you have so many great interviews with people. Like I can't even begin to list. Um, I think just in terms of having a streamlined place where you can get awesome stuff on the Pacers, go there. Uh, it's, 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 it's totally worth it. Um, so I, I'm, it's, it's really funny um, kind of how, how we got this started up and looking at, you know, the, the original list of players I sent you and how we kind of uh, tweaked it. And um it came to today. I, I'm really excited because th- this is a player who um, I, I really I, I don't remember if I told you this, but I didn't get into basketball until probably 2011 or 2012. Um, I was pretty late to the game. I, I didn't really play a ton growing up. I mean, I obviously played it at, at blacktops and such, but never really played a ton organized. I was more um, I was pretty heavily involved with football and, and boxing and hockey. Um, but I, I started watching. um in 12, 13 and, and, and fell in love with, with the Pacers because for whatever reason um, that was the game that that was on when I, I decided to turn on the TV and um, I decided I'd watch some basketball for whatever reason. And it just, it sparked from there. 
Um, so the player that we're going to talk about today is probably not the player that you would think off of that 12-13 that team and the run from that team. We're going to talk about Roy Hibbert today um, because Roy is a, a really interesting character to look at from a multitude of angles. I, I've been thinking about this a lot um, since we started corresponding about this. And just there's so much to talk about with Roy and his career and just him as a person um, that I think is really interesting. I, I'm, I'm excited to do some justice um, to, to him because I think that sometimes we can – we can cast him in a, in a, in a certain light, but um, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about him. Yeah. Roy, I guess you would qualify as enigmatic. You know, he, yeah, uh, he yeah you beat me to it. I was going to ask you the one word to describe Roy in your opinion. And that was uh, a, <laughs> that's, that's that. a perfect way to put it. Yeah. I mean, he's a two-time all-star uh, at one time was regarded as maybe the best defensive center in the league rim protector, uh, but he faded fast. And, yeah. uh, yeah, there's a lot to say about Roy. Yeah. That's, that was another one of my points to bring up. Um, if you ask somebody off the streets right now, what Roy Hibbert's age is, uh, very few would know that he's 33 younger than LeBron. Uh, like it, it's, it's kind of remarkable to look at how quickly he was out of the league. Um, I think he played three seasons and most of them were partial outside the Lakers year. Um, after he, he was traded from the Pacers, um, Obviously, he's a player development coach in Philadelphia now. I don't know if he's being retained on the staff, um, but the last last thing I knew, he was still working in Philadelphia. Um, I, I think the first thing to look at is, and my one word to describe Roy, I think, would be polarizing, um, just because of he was such a, a, I mean, polarizing player. You can look at the the, the vast spectrum of Roy Hibbert. I think. The thing that 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 really stuck out to me, I I, I definitely am very heavily involved with analytics and um, the way that I look at the game um, and just trying to interpret things. I think obviously you have to watch the film and understand what's going on, but then the analytics just serve as as something to help you interpret what you're seeing. And what stands out to me about Roy is how remarkable um, 12, 13, and, and 13, 14 were for him. I mean, he was good before then. Obviously, he was a solid starter. Um, but the way that the team changed around him and was kind of focused around him in 12, 13 is what stands out. And, but then the very steep decline that, that you mentioned just happened so abruptly in the playoffs in 13, 14 and, and never really rights the ship. I mean, we go from in the 13 playoffs against Miami, he averaged 22 and 10 uh, shooting like 57% from the field against Miami. I remember watching the entirety of that series and just thinking, wow, like next year, this team is going to be, Incredible. I, I remember, you know, I, in talking to some of the people I write with at Indy Cornrows and, and, and uh, just talking to people in general who were around that team, there was just a real sense of optimism after that team lost in the Eastern Conference Finals because they were like, okay, well, this team's going to be back next year and they're better. You know, they're going to be prepared to, to play Miami again. Um, and Roy just struggled. And obviously, there's a lot of other stuff that we'll get into, but I mean, he goes from 22 and 10 in that one series to 11 and eight on like almost 15% worse efficiency the next year, just a completely different player, complete fall off. Um, and so I think that's kind of the starting point, just looking at, he's so, um, it, it, obviously you can mention the two games in Atlanta, putting up zero, zero, zero um, in the playoffs in the first round and, and 14, just the two, the two sides to Roy Hibbert, kind of Jacqueline Hyde is the way that I would put it. Yeah. Well, he, Roy was soft mentally, to put it in a nutshell. You know, he worked hard and made himself into a viable player, particularly defensively. 
and he wasn't bad offensively, but mm-hmm. you know, he um, became a great rim protector. You know, you're talking about a guy who's seven foot two, two seventy, so that's a big body, but he didn't have an athlete's mindset, not a not the one you want. You know, his parents, I think, were from Jamaica, weren't from mm-hmm. the country. He's an only child who grew up. His parents emphasized academics, which is great. You know, he went to Georgetown for four years and got a degree, but he never had, you know, what we would regard as uh, a professional basketball player's mindset, you know, and that's not his fault necessarily. You know, he was raised the way he was raised. He had no control over that, but that came back to haunt him, I think. I think he was just too uh, sensitive, basically. Uh, I just recall the players, his teammates, always trying to pump him up, you know, uh, if he had a down game or whatever, and uh, we're in there talking to players and Roy leaves the locker room, you know, somebody like David West would be saying, you know, see you later, big dog, take care, big dog. You know, they're always just trying to pump him up. And at some point, I think that gets old. I think his teammates liked him, but he was just a guy you kind of had a babysit. He was the guy who would, um, you know, just not want to talk to the media at all if uh, things weren't going well. You know, you always respect the guys who will stand up and and face the music, you know, face the media if things didn't go well that night. You know, that that shows maturity. It's respectful to the fans, that kind of thing. But Roy was not that guy. Uh, Guy, I remember a playoff game in Atlanta where we're in there and he's literally laying on the floor in front of his locker and guys are having to step over him to get to talk to someone oh, wow. else, you know, just weird things like that. Uh, so I think that all kind of capsulizes what happened to him. You know, they got him pumped up. You mentioned that playoff series against Milwaukee in 2013, or I guess Miami, I mean, in 2013, that he had a matchup. I think Miami center was like six foot nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Roy I think Roy it was Joel became, Anthony that year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Roy became the goal to go to guy and took advantage of that, but it was kind of misleading because it's not like he was doing that against Shaq, you know, or Patrick mm-hmm. Ewing or something. So, uh, but that still was good. And it did raise hopes. I remember uh, being on an airplane the following summer and uh, doing a crossword puzzle. And the clue was Roy Hibbert's team. And the answer was Pacers. Wow. And I, I showed that to him later and kind of actually wrote a story about it because uh, the great thing about that Pacers team was that it wasn't anybody's team. You know, yeah. you could say it was Roy Hibbert's team, but it was also Paul George's team and David West's team. And, you know, they had great balance. And uh, Roy was an important part of that, but not the guy. And one thing that happened that people talk about, you know, in that 2013-14 season, uh, Larry Bird brought in uh, you know, a center, uh, a backup center, Andrew Bynum. He was never there to take Roy's place, but for whatever reason, Roy like was offended by that. He, it really bothered him that they're bringing in another guy. The guy it should have been bothering was Jan Mahinmi because he mm-hmm. was the one who was going to lose playing time to it. And Jan seemed okay with it. You know, I asked him about it and at least superficially, Jan was saying the right things and didn't show any signs of pouting, but it bugged Roy which it should not have because I thought that I still think it was a good move. It was a risk, but the Pacers needed something else to get over that hump and, and beat Miami and Bynum. If he could have stayed healthy, could have been that guy. He played two games for the Pacers. They won them both. The first one against Boston, he was outstanding. He wasn't that big of a factor in the second game he played, but he just wasn't healthy enough and they let him go. 
but that seemed to really throw throw Roy off. And there was a home game I remember where uh, he kind of got benched the second half, and he pouted big time about that. He just became a headache, and he played so horribly in that playoff series against Atlanta in '14. Uh, I remember Slick Leonard. You know, he he was pretty tight with Frank Vogel. Their wives were friends and go to dinner together, the four of them. And Slick called Frank and said, you know, you should bench Roy. Bring Roy off the bench. He's not giving you anything. Uh, you could be better going small. And Frank kind of tried to compromise. He started Roy, but if he didn't have anything going, he got him out of there quickly. So kind of he didn't want to ruin Roy's confidence. He thought he would need Roy playing well to contend for a championship if they got to the finals. Uh, so Frank approached it that way, which makes sense. And I have no complaint with that, but you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, don't play Roy, just bring Roy off the bench. He was playing so poorly. And the only reason seemed to be that it just, he couldn't handle the emotion of, of being challenged, I guess, if that's the right word by having Andrew Bynum come in and other things just got to him. I'm told that he had friends, uh, relatives, whatever, saying, you're not getting the ball enough. You're not getting enough shots. You're an all-star. You know, and keep in mind, he was an all-star in 13-14, basically based on what he had done in the previous playoff series mm-hmm. in 13. And so here he's an all-star, but he's not getting many shots. They'd go to him early, but then he wouldn't get many shots. You know, in that 13-14 season, he only uh, he averaged fewer than 10 shots a game. Because, you know, Lance Stevens was coming on and Paul George is an all-star and David West and George Hill are there. So that bothered Roy, too. Roy even told me once in a post-game locker room that he was thinking about talking to Vogel about playing off the bench so he could be a bigger part of that offense. He wanted more shots. He wasn't thinking about what's best for the team. What sacrifices do I have to make for us to win? Uh, he wanted more shots because people were in his ear. Uh, telling him he was getting a raw deal and should be scoring more. And he didn't have enough basketball savvy or maturity, in my opinion, to tell him to get lost. Hey, we're a good team. This is what we need to win, that kind of thing. So that was all very unfortunate. I don't blame anybody but Roy for that. I think Frank Vogel did the best he could. Uh, I, I have no problem with the bird bringing in Bynum to see how that worked. Um, but Roy could just not just couldn't handle it. I would love to talk to Roy today um, and see if he has any regrets. <laughs> uh, I just have to believe someday a story will come out where he says, um, you know, I blew it. We had such a good team. We had such a great opportunity back in 13 or 14, and I should have been more mature about it, that kind of thing. I think by now or someday his perspective will be more mature about the situation, and he'll see it differently. Maybe not but I would like to uh, have that conversation with him someday. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that you brought up so many amazing points that I want to hit on. I think um, I remember the the one time I've talked to David West, I, I, I talked to him for about an hour and a half on, on the podcast and I think May. And uh, the thing that stuck out the most to me from when we talked and something that I was not privy to before talking to him um, was how involved Frank was with Roy. Um, I, I think that stuck out a ton to me because I then after after talking to Dave and getting off the the pod, I, I talked to some people I know around the league. I was like, "Is this a common thing?" Like, because um, I mean, he mentioned that uh, even on off days, Frank would come in and work one on one with Roy, just be there with him and and try and boost his confidence. Like, 
I knew obviously, I mean, from, from watching Frank's pressers and, and, and every time that it, you know, his quotes, anytime he talks, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. Um, but to know that he was coming in and, and devoting the time that he was strictly just to keeping Roy's spirits high. Like, I think that is in, in terms of knowing that now, I think that that really turns my mind a lot more to understand kind of what was going on with that team in 13, 14 and why Roy was really struggling with his confidence and, and just some of the issues that were coming from that. Yeah. They had a babysitter, no question. You know, Vogel worked with them a lot defensively, but a lot emotionally too. And like I mentioned earlier, his teammates were always trying to help him out, you know, pump him up a little bit. They knew they needed him to be playing well, to have any chance to win a championship. Uh, so they were always in his corner, always saying the right thing about him. And that element is really one of the reasons Dave West left the Pacers. Now, the main one was he didn't want to have to participate in a rebuilding project mm -hmm. at his age. You know, and he was willing to give up $10, $11 million to go to San Antonio. He wanted to experience that culture. He didn't see any reason at that age to regroup with a team and be part of a rebuilding project. He thought it was time to turn the team over to Paul George. And he thought he would be in the way of that. But he also was tired of kind of being uh, the locker room mentor. You know, coaches yeah. were always calling them, hey, you got to talk to Roy. You know, you got to talk to Lance. You, can you do this? You know, and teammates would call him, what do you think of this? You know, what's going on? And he was always kind of the man in the middle between the coaching staff and players, mm -hmm. was always being asked to help out somebody or say something to somebody or whatever. And I think that kind of wore on him. He just wanted to go and be a part of a good team with a good culture in the final years of his career, man, he did that. You know, he was with San Antonio, and then he won two rings in Golden State. So uh, you can't argue with this move. But, you know, Roy, was a, he wasn't a problem as far as a bad attitude or, mm -hmm. you know, creating trouble. But he was a problem as far as always needing to be babysat and, and checking out emotionally at times. And, you know, that's almost as bad. You'd almost rather have a guy uh, who's – out late at night or or pops off now and then but brings his best effort you know and helps you win really and roy was no longer helping him win as that 13 14 season went along you know his stats for the entire season were not bad he was over 10 points a game um but he just didn't have it in the postseason and that was a team that was entirely geared for the postseason yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they went, if I remember correctly, it was 48 and 12 to start the year. Was it, it's 48 and 12 or 48 and 16. I can't remember. Yeah, Before, I mean, they were 9 and 0 oh and 16 and 1. I remember that. Yeah. Because yeah, they, were, they were rolling. Yeah. And then the, the trade happened, which I, I it, it was funny again, because I mentioned with my interview with David, um, he talked about how he really didn't, he, he was fine with the trade. He understood it. And he, he said that, he felt most of the players on the team were in that same mindset. And he thought that there was just a lot that had changed in terms of everything that was going on in the locker room and with Roy as well. And um, you kind of see that in as the team starts getting some of the publicity um, later on in the year, you know, as they've they've put together just a phenomenal run, they're the first seed in the Eastern Conference. Um, I don't remember which spot it was on, but there was the one when it was like almost everyone on the team of the starting lineup, I should say. Uh, was on ESPN. And I remember Roy had some like really odd remarks there. And he had one after a game against Atlanta, I believe, um, not in the playoffs, but outside of it. Um, and I think that's kind of like when you start to realize that that things are changing. Um, and and would you maybe kind of, can you like point to like one area where you think was 
um, when you started to realize that, that, that the, the mentality of the team was shifting a little bit or things with Roy were? Yeah, I can't point to one moment necessarily, but there, you could just kind of see it gradually seeping in. Like I do mm-hmm. remember that home game in the locker room when he told me that he was thinking of asking Vogel if he could play off the bench, you know, because he, he obviously wanted the ball more. He wanted more shots. Uh, it didn't make any sense because the team had been doing so well. Uh, and he just, he just checked out, you know, and I think it was the combination of not getting more shots. Um, the whole Bynum thing, he took offense to for whatever reason. Uh, well, I know, you know, you shouldn't have, but he just felt threatened by that, I guess. Um, and it just got to him. You know, I always remember something Rick Carlisle said once, and I don't think he originated it, but it's certainly something I found to be true is that success is an obstacle. And the Pacers mm-hmm. were having success, and that team was getting a lot of national publicity. I think you're referring to a thing with Stephen A. Smith where he interviewed all five starters. Yes. In they did a GQ photo show. Oh, yes. Can never forget. <laughs> Can never forget that one. Yeah. And a lot of things like that. And that kind of when people start getting that kind of recognition, some people, it will change them. You know, it will affect their work ethic. It'll affect their ego. And it affected Roy and it affected Paul George temporarily. I thought, you know, Paul George you might remember that was the year that he went on Jimmy Kimmel and, and that weird green outfit. And because um, he had had that 360 dunk against the Clippers and they mm-hmm. played that. And, and that's when Kimmel suggested he change his number to 13 so it could be PG 13. And it affected Paul. I mean, he had about a 10-game stretch leading up to and around that Jimmy Kimmel appearance where he did not play at, at all. He was forcing up shots. He was trying to score too much. But he got it back together. You, know, you, look, you look back in the playoffs, Paul George was Paul George. He, he played well in the playoffs in 14. Uh, it was Roy Hibbert who held them back. And there was just nothing anybody could seem to do uh, to get him going again, to get his confidence back up. Again, there just wasn't enough of a foundation there athletically uh, to enable him to deal with certain pressures, with recognition, that kind of thing, because he had not really grown up playing basketball. He only played basketball because he was so damn big, right? Yeah. Seven foot two. If he was six foot five, he would not have been a basketball player. Um, but, you know, he got himself to where he was really good. And is really a valuable member of a really good team, but he didn't have the mental, the emotional foundation to be able to deal with the things that you're going to have to deal with if you become a really good player, a good team. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think you you definitely see that. Um, and it's something I, I, I wonder, uh, I, I meant to ask this earlier, is he taking any interviews at all? Because last time I knew uh, he was not. I remember... I talked to Scott Agnes when, when I first started up this podcast. And uh, one of the first things I did was, you know, a look back at the 13, 14 team because quarantine had just started. So he was, you know, first idea. Um, but he said he'd, he'd wanted to do the same as you were mentioning, talking to Roy about everything that went on. And he's still not taking interview requests. No, he, uh, you know, the, after he left the Pacers, he played for the Lakers. Yeah. He started 80, 81 out of 82 games. The one game he didn't start. Was that Bankers Life Fieldhouse? What a coincidence, huh? Yeah. He came in and came up with some kind of injury, uh, and he hid back in the trainer's room in the visiting locker room so he wouldn't have to face the media. He didn't talk to the media. I mean, 
that's when you really knew what he was about. He, yeah. he hit, sat out that game because he didn't want to be booed or whatever by the home fans. He didn't want to face the media. So he hit. He literally hit back in the trainer's room with a made-up injury, the only game he missed all year, um, and didn't talk to anybody. That, to me, tells you how soft he was emotionally at that time. Uh, that really exposed it. So I lost respect for him that night. Uh, he wasn't going to get grilled or anything by the media. People would have wanted him to reflect on what had happened with the Pacers, that kind of thing. But uh, everybody was ready to move on. So, you know, he played that year with the Lakers. He was, you know, even less a part of their offense than he had been with the Pacers. Mm-hmm. He ever said there's six points a game. Then the next year, he's with Charlotte for a while. Then he played a handful of games with Denver. And he hasn't played. He hasn't played since the uh, 2016-17 season. And that also tells you that basketball just wasn't uh, that important to him or he just wasn't cut out to play it because he could still be playing. Like you mentioned, he's 33 years old. He could still be playing today if he wanted to. But he he just retired. He had the money. He had a house in L.A. Uh, he was done with basketball at the age of 30. And he, he was physically able to play. He just wasn't emotional. Uh, for playing. I was really surprised when he got that job and took that job with Philadelphia as a player development coach. I'm sure there's certain things he could teach, you know, anybody about defending the rim or whatever, but I'm, I'm surprised he wanted to be back in basketball. Um, but apparently he did, and I don't know if he will survive the regime change out there in Philly. There's already a couple people, you know, Dan Burke is an assistant coach, Peter mm-hmm. Dinwiddie as a front office executive are going to Philly. Um, I mean, they're, they're now as we speak. And I don't know if Roy uh, will survive it. Probably not because, you know, they've got a new coach and coaches always bring in their own personnel. But um, I'm surprised he even wanted to be in basketball, actually. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I remember when I first saw that he was announced to, to join that staff in 2019, I, just being really surprised uh, because of the way that he'd left basketball. Um, and, and the way things had gone and especially knowing, cause I mean, even then he wasn't right after getting out, he wouldn't take interview requests. I remember seeing that. Um, so that, that's always just been really interesting. Um, and I think, you know, and looking at, at maybe a little bit more positive stuff, cause I think there's a lot that, that's good that you can talk about with Roy too. Um, in terms of all the Pacers defenses that you've witnessed, uh, does this one stick out as the best? Because I think, or, or I guess you can't just like pin it on one season. You could look, I, I think I always tend to look at it. All right. The last 30 games of 12, 13 in the playoffs. And then the first 40 or 50 games of 13, 14, that stretch is what I think of in terms of, of that team, you know, their pinnacle. Um, and I feel like in watching that, that team's defense play um, over the last 10 years, I have not seen uh, too many defenses that were better than that. And then in going back and watching film, obviously you can find some because there's there's even more. Um, but in terms of watching the Pacers play, uh, I, I I struggle to say that that was not the best defense that I've ever seen from the Pacers. No, I agree. I think it was. It was outstanding. You know, think about it. Roy Hibbert uh, was one of the better shot blockers in the league, and beyond that, kind of prevented uh, teams from wanting to go in yeah. and block shots. You had George Hill, a point guard, who was an outstanding defender, an underrated defender, mm-hmm. underrated player in my opinion. Lance Stevenson, I wouldn't call a great defender, but he was a really physical defender. In a, in a one-on-one setting, he was a good defender. He wasn't the guy who was 
going to be a great weak side defender, you know, mm-hmm. be in the right place at the right time. You know, some of the nuances of defense, you know, he hadn't latched on to yet, but he um, still was a, at least a solid defender. David West defended well, and Paul George was a great defender, first team all defense. So that was an outstanding defensive team. It was uh, a young team. It was a team that had a good combination of experience, except for Lance Stevenson and had experience. Um, but we're still young, you know, nobody was over the hill in my opinion. So, mm-hmm. um, I would go along with that. They've had some really good defenses at different times. Certainly when you had Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal, that was a good defensive team, but I wouldn't say it was better than the 13 or 14 Pacer teams. You know, some of the recent teams have been good defensively too, but I do agree that stretch you're talking about the end of 12, 13, uh, the better part of 13, 14. Uh, probably the best defensive team the Pacers have ever had. Yeah, it's. I mean, especially you can you can look at the the block against Carmelo Anthony in, in the thirteen playoffs. Yeah. I mean, that's the pinnacle right there. And then you look at um, the way that they defended Miami and and just totally took away a lot of the driving lanes um, by making them non-existent. I mean, it, it's so remarkable going back and watching how that defense played compared to how defenses play now because. I mean, I don't think they could play the way that they did now. I mean, they wouldn't, obviously. I, you know, things change, so you wouldn't play the same way. But it's just crazy looking at how different it was because, I mean, that team hard hard hedged the heck out of every ball screen. Like, I remember the first time when I really understood basketball, you know, within the last couple of years after really, really focusing in on it and, and trying to understand the game better and diving in and going back and watching that team and understanding why their defense was so good. Like, I can't even imagine today – witnessing someone like David West hard hedging 28 feet out that, that would never happen today like almost never happen I mean the, Denver did some stuff with with hedging a little bit um but it's it's kind of remarkable watching them play they almost played like a spread defense in a way they have, everyone's out and and Roy is just on the inside deterring everything like um it, it's just kind of funny to look back at it obviously it wasn't technically Roy's team but so much of what the team did was built around what he could do defensively. I mean, obviously that team was, they weren't great offensively. Um, I think Frank gets a lot of crap or got a lot of crap less now, but um, for that team not being ranked highly offensively, but I also would point out that they did not have a lot of great offensive weapons. I mean, they had some guys who were good individually, but um, all in all, I I think the offensive uh, firepower wasn't quite there. Um, But I mean, yeah, that defense was just remarkable. And I think, there was a definite case where where you could point out that Roy, um, I mean, I, considering the inconsistencies of the season, it made sense that he came in second to to, to Joachim Noah that year. Um, but I think over that 80-game stretch, um, there's a definite case that he was just about the best defensive player in basketball or more most impactful, I think would be the way to put it. Not necessarily the best, but in terms of the way that he changed the game, Um for opposing teams, I think it, there's a, certainly a case. Yeah, I think when you have a defender, a rim protector like that, it allows you to um, gamble out front. You know, a guy like Paul George or George Hill can get up on their man. You know, if he gets beat, you've got somebody back there behind you who could either change a shot or block a shot. So it just uh, changes your entire defense to have that rim protector. And, you know, that's what made that team so good. That was the best defensive team in the league just by rating. Mm-hmm. You know, not, it was as in the bottom half offensively, but it was the best defensive team in the league. Um, and, 
you know, statistically and just passing the eye test as well. And that all hinged around Roy being around the basket. And with the work he had put in, uh, he kind of earned that title, you know, and, and the block of Carmelo kind of was this signature moment uh, that he, excuse me, deserved to have or had earned. Uh, it was a great photo in the Indianapolis Star. And it's something I bet you Roy's got that hanging on his wall at home somewhere. Probably if, uh, if I were him, I certainly would hang it up. But, um, you know, blocking a dunk attempt by Carmelo kind of saved that playoff victory yeah. at, the, at the field house. And that kind of summarizes the whole thing. You know, you got a guy back there like that. Uh, it makes a huge difference for your other four teammates out on the perimeter. Uh, you can play guys a little bit differently. Your weak side defense can change a little bit. So he was huge. And, you know, I, he deserves credit because, number one, he could have come. He would have been drafted higher if he came out after his junior year. Yeah. Uh, by staying his senior year, he lost a little bit of his upside argument. And uh, he was the 17th pick. I thought Larry Bird made a good trade. You know, Jermaine O'Neal was sent to Toronto. And Roy, the draft pick that was used for Roy Hibbert came to the Pacers. And to get, you know, a future all-star center for a guy like Jermaine O'Neal, who was past his prime and was never the same player again, uh, turned out to be a really good thing for the Pacers. But it just didn't last. You know, it tells you how hard it is to keep a, a good team together because stuff happens that you cannot anticipate. And in this case, the main thing that happened, number one, it was – Paul George breaking his leg, but also how do you predict Roy Hibbert's going to become a two-time all-star, a great defensive center, a good guy and all this kind of thing. And then he's just going to kind of collapse. He's going to melt right in front of your very eyes and be a guy you just have to get rid of because you know, he just loses it emotionally. I don't see how you could predict that. So Roy deserves credit for the work he put in to become an all-star and the contributions he made to a couple of really good teams. But he also deserves the blame uh, for what happened with him ultimately and the way his career ended. Now, you know, he was, I assume he was happy. I mean, he, he didn't love basketball enough to want to maintain his career, but that's something that nobody could have uh, predicted for the Pacers. And it was the main, it's a big factor in why they had to go through another rebuilding process. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I have, I have two questions off that. Number one, um, and as you mentioned, Georgetown, you know, that's something I was looking at, too. Um, I, I think it's kind of remarkable that that him and Jeff Green were on the same team, uh, because in some ways you can kind of draw comparisons to their career a little bit. Um, Jeff Green was one of the first basketball players that I fell in love with. You know, you could see the talent and obviously what an incredible player he was. Never was a guy you were worried about off court or anything. By all means, like a pretty soft spoken dude. Um but he had kind of like those real ups and downs in his career. And I think he's found much more of a role um, later on in his career as a, as kind of a role player. But I mean, coming out of the draft, he was expected to be one of the best players. You know, I mean, uh, obviously he wasn't going to be Kevin Durant or, or Greg Oden in that same draft, but uh, I mean, he was really, really good, had all the tools to be an incredible player. And that's not to besmirch what he's been in the league. I mean, he's been a very solid player in the league. Um, but it's just kind of funny how him and Roy kind of went through that same path a little bit, obviously in very different ways, um, but just kind of in, in struggling to kind of fulfill what what you, what you could see in, in what they could be in the league. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, there's a lot of guys like that. You know, they mm -hmm. 
get into the league and they really show something and you're really hopeful for what they can become. And then for whatever reason, they just kind of peter out and disappear and maybe they are okay and they make contributions, but they don't become what most people thought they were going to become. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. Number one, an injury could always be a factor, but more than that, it's what we were talking about earlier. How do you deal with success? How do you deal with it when you get, you know, your first big contract that gives you financial security for life? Uh, how do you deal with the ego part? Maybe you, uh, have a great season and, uh, but then your role changes, like with Roy Hibbert, how it changed and how do you deal with that? You know, I, I've been reading a book, you know, on the Lakers, uh, championship teams, the three ring circus book and, Oh, you know, so Jeff from, Perlman's book, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you have a guy like Glenn Rice, who was a, a star player in a couple of places, and he comes to the Lakers where you have Shaq and Kobe, so his role needs to change. He's not going to be that much of a part of the offense, and he can't deal with it. Yeah. And that happens a lot of basketball, and that's why, that's why I like basketball, because it's so hard to put together a cohesive unit where the chemistry is right, and uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and guys, you know, accept their roles and make one another better, that kind of thing. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do in any workplace, you know, any office, you know, to achieve chemistry or a musical group to uh, achieve chemistry. You know, look at the guys who quit bands because they don't think they're getting enough attention or enough of a role. Um, so you see that in the NBA where guys get unhappy with the role or, they get softened by some success. They get softened by the money they're making, and, and they just kind of peter out. So Jeff Green would be a guy like that. Roy Hibbert would be a guy like that. I mean, you're, you really see that fairly often. It's just the human element of sports, of life, and yeah. uh, it makes it interesting. No, I agree. I think that's that's a really great point. Like, um, It's something that I always toy with a lot because I, I never really know quite how to look at it. I think I'm, I'm always a – pretty player centric person. Obviously I really enjoy the Pacers. Um, but I, I think I root for players a lot more than teams and just in, in getting to know some guys now, um, you know, you look at um, just in, in terms of, of, of how you, you evaluate stuff. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, um, I always thought about, you know, not even just basketball players, but athletes in general. And I was like, well, you know, they get paid so much money, but it, I mean, yeah, obviously they put in work, but they, they, they get paid like a crazy amount and they do. I think that that's something that you can't really push off. I mean, that's, that's just the case. I mean, um, Victor Oladipo is getting paid $21 million right now. Um, you could point out any number of players that are getting paid a, a huge amount of money. Um, and it's hard to, to, I think, like look at it in terms of just the way that, it, you know, a casual fan looks at the game. It's hard to um, equate the fact that there's so much more that goes on outside of just what's going on on court that I think these guys deal with and go through. And I think we've, we've kind of seen that with Victor now, you know, I just, it, I, I don't have like full credentials, obviously whenever Tom can't get on, I'm allowed to get on, on calls, but I think we've seen this year. This is just in my opinion, but I mean, seeing the way that Victor has changed with the media, I think is, is pretty true. You know, I think it's not even that I think he doesn't like talking to people. I think it's just, he's getting asked so many questions. It's hard to, uh, that's that's the kind of stuff we don't think about as people, you know, and until you get into this kind of position or see it, you know, like I never thought about what it's got to be like to to answer questions about your life and what you're doing um, 
all the time. Like it's, it, I, it's, it's obviously there are ways to handle it that are, are positive. Uh, and Roy struggled with that 100%. Um, but I think it's just a really interesting element that a, a lot of times we forget as people and is that they're just as human as we are. They just get paid a lot more and they're often quite taller. So. Yeah. The, the human element is always there and it hasn't changed. You know, it's popular for a lot of older fans to say, oh, the players today are softer than back in the day or, you know, whatever. No, they're no different. In fact, I would say the players today on the whole are more mature yeah. than back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Uh, but we don't like to say that. You know, a lot of people, as they get older, refuse to acknowledge that a younger generation might be superior in any way whatsoever. But, uh, you know, I, I know the history of the Pacers going back to the very beginnings and you know, their guys showed immaturity in a lot of different ways. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, they uh, didn't work as hard as the guys do today. Hardly did anything in the off seasons, uh, that kind of thing. So it doesn't change. It's the human element. There will always forever be guys who are softened by success or who um, get selfish and have a hard time fitting into a role or have a hard time sacrificing to make a team better, that kind of thing. That will never change. Yeah, and it's always been that way. There never was a time when all the players were really mature and accepting of coaching and got along and worked really hard every night. You know, this kind of thing that's never happened and never will. Uh, I think the game has evolved to a good place where really guys are more mature. Uh, they know how the game should be played. And uh, if you don't go along with that, you will not either be in the league or you won't have the kind of career you could have. So, um, these things we're talking about are always going to be there. They're human nature. Uh, you know, Roy Hibbard is no different than a thousand other guys who have played in the NBA. And, you know, he's just the guy we happen to be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So I think one of the final questions I want to ask um, in more of a comedic sense, how many double dribbles do you think uh, Roy got non-called for? Because uh, I think <laughs> you can go back through uh, any number of games. I remember I was just watching the 14 playoffs uh, over quarantine and I, I saw in a game, it just so over the course of like one possession, they missed like two or three non-double dribble calls. He was awful. Oh, my God. Back and down the post. As much as I really enjoyed watching him play. And he actually had surprisingly good touch. Not at the rim. He wasn't great at rim. But um, from like 10 to 12 feet out, he had solid touch. But um, his uh, when he backed down somebody in the post, he was uh, pretty apt to, to double dribble that thing. I think one of the main uh, things about basketball is that if you – commit a relatively minor violation and kind of work it into your repertoire, you'll get away with it. <laughs> a lot of guys uh, maybe have a little stutter step before they get off their shot, which would technically be traveling. Uh, but it's just not called because, you know, the referees see it consistently. And it may be a thing that really doesn't give you an advantage. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like you could just take the ball and run to the basket. You're not going to get away with that. But if it's a little stutter step as you get off your shot, or maybe even a, a double dribble or a palming type of violation, as long as it doesn't give you an advantage, uh, I'm okay with letting it go because, my goodness, there's enough whistles in the game as there is, as you know, we all, we will ever yes, need to do. You know, too many stoppages of play, so I'm okay with letting players get away with uh, less less obvious things as long as it's not what allows them to score. So yeah, Roy had his little moves down in the post and he did have a kind of an awkward jump hook and he wasn't a terrible mid-range shooter, 
but um, you know, he he is an old school player, no question. He was a low post player. I don't believe you have to have your center out shooting three pointers. I think there's a lot of different ways to win, and maybe a guy like Roy Hibbert isn't the current in style kind of player, but you can still win that way if you if you build the team around that guy the right way. You know, I know Sabonis is trying to extend his range and become a better three point shooter and better mid range shooter. His dad has told him he needs to do that, but the Pacers can win with Sabonis on the low block and getting mm-hmm. most of his points down there um there's a lot of ways to do it but you know that's uh roy was an old school guy uh and as we mentioned he could still be playing today if he really wanted to i wonder you know if he's really ever given serious thought to coming out of retirement you know a lot of guys do he could have done it after a couple of years if he had worked hard enough he could have gotten a spot on the team but uh the love of the game wasn't there he probably did see the game going away from his style of play um, you know, Larry Bird commented on that after Roy's last season with the Pacers that he says, I don't know, you know, if I could start Roy next year, you know, the league's changing. We need to get more three point shots up, that kind of thing. So that probably factored into Roy's decision to stop playing. Um, he could have become a better mid range shooter if he wanted to. I don't think he ever would have been a three point shooter, but he could have been mm-hmm. a good 15, 17 foot shooter and stayed in the league if he wanted to. But, uh, I think the combination, of his loss of love for the game and the fact that the game was trending away from his style of play, I think kind of did him in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. It would, uh, yeah, it's, it's really just, it's been good to, to, to kind of look back on his career like this and, and, and talk about him as a player. I, I don't know. It, it would be interesting to see how he would fit, fit into a game today. Maybe, uh, I, I think, Definitely not as a starter. I think he would struggle no. to start. But yeah, as a bench player, I could definitely see it as like a 10 minute a game guy. Not now because he's been out for so long. And it's right. hard to get that athleticism back once you you kind of lose some of what you've done. Um, but I, I think just kind of in closing, um, how, how do you think that that Pacers fans should remember Roy Hibbert? Or, um, you know, because I think it people still have much more of a bad. T- I learned this uh, from doing the podcast. People have much more of a bad taste in their mouth. Um, from that 14 team than I think uh, I realized um, before I got into this because I, you know, I kind of, I don't want to say I got over it, but I think I'm less of a, less of a fan and more of just, a, I enjoy basketball. I think that's what I've gotten to um, and just watching basketball all the time and, and not just the Pacers. Like, um, but I, I do think there is still some of that bitterness there, but I, I don't really think any of it should be directed at Roy, even though he did play a part in it. No, I mean, to me, he was the biggest, not the only reason, but the biggest reason that mm-hmm. team kind of crapped out. Although we should remind that they got to the conference finals. Yeah, exactly. Know, took Miami to six games. So it's not like they were a disaster, but it was just, uh, you know, it wasn't the same as it had been the year before. So uh, I think Roy should be remembered with mixed feelings. I think he deserves a lot of respect for building himself up into an all-star performer and having a major role on the, particularly the 12-13 team, but also for a good part of the 13-14 season. But he does deserve criticism mm-hmm. for the way it ended. You know, he's just a guy who uh, should be viewed with mixed feelings, I think. Now, as years go by, I think it's human nature to filter out the negative memories and remember the positive. You know, we always tend to do that. And I think someday, probably, Roy will be back at the field house or whatever and will get a nice ovation, something like that. I think he will uh, ultimately be remembered 
as a good guy and a and a good player, not a great player, but a good player. So that's just human nature. You know, I've seen that over the years, people really filter out and forget the negatives and, and kind of focus on the positives. So that'll happen with Roy. But as far right now, I think he really does deserve mixed feelings because I know a lot of people, they want to blame Vogel for that 13-14 team. They want to blame Bird for bringing in Bynum. Uh, or that trade with Philadelphia that brought in Evan Turner. I thought both of those deals showed, you know, Bird uh, being willing to make a bold move that would put his team over the top, you know, not being afraid. I don't think Vogel really knew what to do with Evan Turner, but that's another story. So I think, again, you know, I, I point to Roy more than anybody for that 13-14 disappointment, but still he contributed a lot. He wasn't a troublemaker. Uh, he's a good guy. He's lived his life well, and I assume he's happy in his retirement from being a player. So, uh, that's all good. You know, that's good for him. And in the bigger picture of life, you know, uh, he's got it good. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more than just basketball. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I really hope that, that there's a time where he is able to come back to the field house and be kind of welcome. And more importantly, is willing to, because like you mentioned, he, he really hasn't been, um, so I'm I'm hopeful of that happening. Uh, I'd actually I'd love to talk with him someday. I've obviously never gotten to talk to him before, but um, it would be cool. You know, I, I had a lot of struggles. I obviously never made it to the level of athlete he was, um, but but I, I I can I can relate to some of the stuff that that he went through and dealing with confidence as an athlete. So um, it'd well, be really awesome. What at every level, Mark? You know, with high school, college, there's always somebody on a team whose confidence is down mm-hmm. or they're unhappy with the role. Uh, that type of thing. And that's, you know, why I like covering basketball as a journalist, because you've got these stories going on with every team. Even if it's a bad team, somebody's career is on the rise. Somebody's really got something going. Uh, And even on a great team, somebody's unhappy. (laughs) And uh, it's it's an issue. Uh, So you've always got these stories brewing beneath the surface. And uh, whenever you do have a team where everybody is really getting along well and and positive and you know the team is getting the most out of what his ha- what it has as a group and that's a beautiful thing and you know the Pacers had that in 97 98 Bird's first year had it to not quite the same degree but to a good degree the next two years under Bird they had some other teams they've had other teams since then where they had that chemistry and an attitude going where it's really exciting to watch but it's hard to maintain man it is hard yeah. to maintain and uh you know, I, I think this 13-14 Pacer team is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I think that's going to be kind of the the theme in moving through this series is uh, maintaining is much harder than building up. Um, I think I've learned yeah. that in my life as well. But, yeah, we, we will definitely be hitting on that theme a lot more. Um, Mark, I want to say thank you again, and I, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to doing some more of these. Um, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or anything that you want to you want to put out into the ether for people to know before we get out of here? Oh, not really. I, other than, I guess I would invite people to check out markmonteith.com and uh, uh, you could kind of get a feel for what's there without uh, joining in. And if you do want to join in, that opportunity is there. And uh, other than that, I look forward to having some more of these conversations with you. Me as well. To everyone listening, of course, go check out Mark's work. Uh, follow him on Twitter as well. Um, follow me on Twitter if you're not following me already. If you're listening, you're probably following me, but you, you get the point. Um, I'll obviously rate and review us on Apple podcasts, uh, anywhere else you can get our podcasts. 
and be sure to read us on any cornrows. More importantly, just have a good rest of your day. Try not to think too much about uh, all the crazy shenanigans going on in the world right now and just, uh, just enjoy your day. Have a good one.